Well, good evening. We're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. Actually, we're studying the first six chapters of the book of Romans. And if you remember, last time we, we kind of lumped together most of the first three chapters, just thematically lumped those together. Tonight, let me, let me introduce how we're going to tie this together, because what I told you last time was we talked about the problem that Paul starts the good news of the gospel with the idea that, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness, against our unrightness, and that he was going to move on then and say, okay, what are we going to do with that? Let me step back to a more fundamental question. I was thinking the other day about the, our Declaration of Independence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I thought to myself, the pursuit of happiness is an American obsession. And you might just say it's, a, it's an obsession for people. Everybody would like to be happy. Or at least, once you get a little wiser, you realize that happiness is inevitably up and down a little bit. At least want peace, contentment, if not momentary happiness. But that's a, something that people pursue. But very few people actually are happy for any length of time. I mean, you may be happy for a little while, and then you're not, something bad happens. Happiness is very circumstantial. But even if you want to talk about contentment and peace, a lot of people pursuing it, not many people finding it. And I want, thought to myself, why is that? And I'll give you an answer as to why I think that happens, and it's going to tie into the answer that the gospel wants to give to the fundamental question of life. Just a true story. Uh, a few months ago, I started having some, okay, and this isn't going to be just Terry moaning about his medical condition. There's a point to this story. So I started having some real pain in my hip, and uh, it was you know, just really atypical. I thought, ah, you've overdone it, and, but it didn't go away. So I went to my doctor, finally, and said, look, this, this is starting to really be a problem, starting to hurt. And so he does some tests, and he sends them off. Results come back, and he reads it out, and he says, you know, According to the tests, according to what they're saying, you have osteoarthritis in your hip. I thought, well, that's not good, but this you know, happens, and so let's deal with it. What do we do? And so he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And so movement's really good, so you keep running. That's great. I love that. So just keep running. And it didn't hurt when I was running. I thought, well, it must be a good thing. And so he gives, you know, you do the medicine and that sort of thing. Then I keep getting worse. I get worse and worse, and I get to the point where it's just really a problem. I mean, it's just a lot of pain. And so I thought, okay, this is not working. You know, just, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So I go see a friend of mine who's a specialist in this, and he brings me in, and he does another round of tests. And he comes in, and he says, okay, I've got some good news for you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with your hip. And I said, well, that is good news. I said, except that it hurts like the Dickens. So... Hopefully you have an answer for that. And he said, actually, I do. He said, it's this other problem, which is eminently more solvable than that. He says, and we're going to take care of that. I'm going to give you some medicine. And sure enough, it seems to be working. Now, you're saying to yourself, Terry, what's the point of that other than we now know your medical history and probably violated several HIPAA rules here, I suspect, in disclosing that to you. But seriously, that was an interesting lesson as I thought about that. And I thought, you know, obviously... We began by treating the wrong problem. And I was never going to be out of pain as long as we kept treating the wrong problem. I'm sure whatever I was taking was helping osteoarthritis in my hip. I just didn't happen to have that problem, right? And it wasn't until we actually started treating the right problem that I started getting better. And you're saying to yourself, that's a blinding flash of the obvious, Terry. But I really think... That's what the scripture has to say about this whole pursuit of happiness, contentment, and peace issue, is we can chase after solutions all day long and never find happiness, never find peace if we are trying to solve the wrong problem. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of times we think the thing that's standing between me and peace, the thing that's standing between me and contentment is my spouse or my job or I don't make enough money or I have health problems, or my hip hurts, you know, whatever it may be, we think this is my problem, and we expend a great deal of effort 
trying to solve that problem, don't we? And here's my point. If that's not the underlying problem, then we will never achieve peace, happiness, or contentment, will we? And I think that's what the book of Romans is talking about, and I think that's why the book of Romans starts the way it does. I think that's why Paul introduces the good news by first telling you the bad news, and that is, here is the underlying problem. The scripture says, the thing that stands between us and peace is not our spouse, our job, our health, or how much money we make, or where we live, or those kinds of things. The self-help books are filled with ways to deal with that. And I just want you to look around the world and say this. When you pick up the newspaper, does it look to you like anybody's figured out the secret of happiness yet? They haven't. And my contention is it's because you can treat this all day long in any way you want to, but if you're treating the wrong problem, you're not going to get well. So Paul begins and he says, listen, here is the underlying problem, is that we are unrighteous. And you remember how we define that? Is there's a wrongness about us. There's a, we are not right. And we talked about that in two ways. We said we're not judicially right with God. It's sort of like we're running around here and there are warrants out for our arrest. You know, the law is after us. In other words, we're not right in a judicial sense. And we're not right with God in a relational sense, are we? It's like you've had a big fight with one of your dear family members and you're just out of sorts. It's like, wait, there's something wrong here. He says that wrongness exists between us and God. And the thing that got us there is we rebelled, we sinned. He said, and so our fundamental problem is sin. Our fundamental problem is this estrangement. And Paul goes on to say, I mean, just kind of you know, put this to you. He goes on to say, not only is our fundamental problem sin, but that fundamental problem affects everybody. If you remember, we talked about in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about what about people who never heard of God? You know, what about the natural man? What can be known to anyone? And then in chapter 2, he moves on and he says, well, what about moral people? What about people who have a morality? Then in chapter 2, verse 17, he uses the Jews as an example of, well, what about religious people? And in every case, here's what he concludes. In chapter 3, he says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Just as it's written, there is no one righteous, meaning no one is right with God, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So while we're spending our time trying to change our environment, we're running through spouses in our uh, society like crazy, or we're running through jobs, or you know my kids are my problem, or the government's my problem, or something is my problem. And true, there may be issues there. The problem is, is that you can slap Band-Aids on those things all you want. If we don't cure the underlying condition, it's, we're never going to be whole. We're never going to be healed. And Paul says he makes this bold, this is a really pretty bold claim that, uh, that the Scripture's making. It says, your fundamental underlying problem is sin. Now, what do I mean by sin? This is a little bit of a diversion. Uh, the Scripture talks a lot about exactly what does sin look like. But Sin is defined in a lot of ways, and Paul's going to give you a little bit of a list here, but let's think about it in one way as being, as uh, Dr. Cliff Sanders is fond of saying, and I love this definition, is sin is, is misplaced love. That's kind of at the root of it. In other words, I've loved myself more than God. I'm in rebellion against God. It's going to have to be about me and not about God. And that leads to a lot of things. And Paul lists a few. He said, look at this. The end of chapter 1, he says, this is what we've become as we have turned away from God. Remember all those exchanges? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for to worship things that are created beings. He says, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed. And notice in this list, we're not talking about, oh, that's murder and that's awful. Listen to the things that are in this list. Greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife with each other, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, 
We don't usually put that in the same category as murderers, do we? Gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogance, pride, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. What the scripture is de describing there is the effect of sin in our life. And it says, this is the fundamental problem that we have. That's different than any other religion. It's different than any self-help regimen. It's different than any new age kind of a philosophy is the scripture makes this bold claim that if you want to achieve peace, or happiness, or contentment, the fundamental problem you have to address is this sin problem that we have and that it's a ubiquitous problem this unrightness in our relationship with God. There's just a wrongness. Well, that's really straight talk. And that's where the gospel, if you think about it, has to start. It's like my treatment. If we start with a treatment that doesn't address the underlying problem, we're never going to get where we want to go, are we? And that's why I think you see us try self-help. And some of you may be like me in your earlier life before you became a Christian. I tried a lot of different things. I was a Buddhist for a while, tried some New Age stuff for a while, and at the end of the day, I realized this is not really solving my problem. I still have this pain, this aching, this longing, and that's because it never really addressed the issue that I had. There's an unrightness in my relationship with God. So the scripture begins with that, and that's what we talked about in our last lesson. That's the first, basically, three chapters of Romans, is describing our condition. Then, Scripture moves on, and it's going to propose a solution to this problem. It's going to say, now that you understand what the fundamental problem is, we're going to have a prescription. In other words, how are you going to get well? And this is where we left off in our last lesson is, given that I have this terminal condition called sin, how am I going to get well? Given that I have this unrightness in my relationship with God, how does that get healed? How do we make that whole? Well, the scripture answers that in a very interesting way. It has a really bold claim about that because it's not what you would think. Our first thought is that we need to change our behavior. And when you read the book of Romans, it's going to talk about the law. And here's how I'd like you to think about the law. Paul says, makes this conclusion after he finishes that. He says, therefore... No one will be declared righteous. Remember, that's kind of a religious term, but what we meant by that is no one's going to be healed of this wrongness, this alienation from God by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, there's a sense, uh, clearly Paul's talking about the idea, contrasting this with the law of Moses versus the grace of Jesus Christ. But I want to take this into a bigger picture and say, this isn't written just for Jews who follow the law of Moses. You and I follow the law. And here's what I mean by that is, behavioral solutions to problems are a form of law. What this passage is saying is that we tend to want to solve our sin problem. We actually want to try to solve all of our problems by changing my behavior. In other words, I'll act better. I'll do better. God, I can be a better person. I can act better. And Paul says, here's the conclusion. This problem, if your prescription for the problem is do better, it's going to be like my problem, is it? You can take that do better medicine all you want to, you're still going to have the pain because it won't solve that problem. And so Paul says, no one, will be right. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. So the first thing, the first bold claim goes against our, our tradition is that the gospel is not a new way to act. I don't know about you, but if you think about the problems you have in life and if you pick up the books that promise to help you with it, what they fundamentally say is, I'm going to show you a new way to act. All right? If you want to make more money, because you don't have enough money, well, I'm going to show you how to invest. I'm going to show you how to take advantage of the coming hard times, you know. Or, in other words, we're going, to, we're going to behave our way out of this. The gospel says, you know what, that might be a band-aid on some situations, but this is not a new way to act about things. Here's the bold claim, and it's bolder than you think because it's 
it's, uh, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute because it's very counterintuitive. It says the solution to the sin problem is not a new way to act. It's a new way to think. And I'm not talking here about a humanistic new way of thinking, but if you ask Paul, he says, what do I need to do? Here's the answer. This righteousness from God, this is Romans 3.22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, if you remember our last time, we took that word faith and reminded you that in the scriptures, the word faith and belief and trust are all the same words. And my suggestion is that in current English, the word trust really captures this better. So the way to be right with God is to trust Jesus Christ. Well, that's very counterintuitive, isn't it? Because that's not a behavioral thing. It's like, well, no, really, what do I need to do? He says, actually, I want you to trust Jesus Christ. That's the prescription that solves the sin problem. It's not a new way to act. It's a new way to think. Well, what does that really mean? Think in, in what sense? What does trust look like? It means believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do, and in a, in a more fundamental sense, that reality is what he says it is. That reality is what he says it is. Everything from there is a creator of the universe. There is a God who has revealed himself, who is knowable. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said, right in John chapter 14. In other words, do you believe that? Do you trust that I am the way? It's exactly what happened when I go to the doctor's office. Back to my example. When the test came back and said, you have this condition, and the doctor said, you need to take this pill, I'm oversimplifying. He said, take that pill. I have no idea whether or not that pill is going to solve this problem, but I have trust in this doctor. Does that make sense? In other words, I trust in the sense that I believe that this is actually, my condition is what he says it is, and that this prescription is really going to fix that condition. So this isn't an unusual idea to us, and I want you to think about it in that way, because what the Scripture is really saying to us is, not a new way to act, new way to think. I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans chapter 12 will say. In other words, the solution to this problem is to trust. That's the good news. And so he finishes up. We're just tailing off right through the end of chapter 3. He's come through and talked about our sin problem, and he says, and let me tell you what, acting right, the law, behavior, is not the solution to this problem. You can try it, but it'll never solve this sin problem. Instead, this rightness, wholeness, healing comes through trust in Jesus Christ, and it's available to anyone who will trust him. And he sums it up like this. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, apart from behaving your way, apart from doing better, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith, trust in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned. In other words, this is a universal terminal condition. And Paul talks about all the classes of people because we all want to say, well, not me. Yes, him, I understand how he's a sinner, but not me. And Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are all justified. Remember, we talked about that too. Righteousness, justified. It's the same, same word, same idea in Greek. We're made right with God, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came in Jesus Christ. So that's how Paul sums this up. He says, here's your, here's your prescription. Writes it out, hands it to you, said, take that to the pharmacy. That's going to solve your underlying problem. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds a little too easy, though. If you stop and think about it, just believe in Jesus Christ? Doesn't that sound like it's a little too easy? Sort of like going to the doctor and says, really, you have a massive problem, but you take this one pill, you'll be better in the morning. It's like, wait a minute, that sounds a little too easy. Don't we want to do some surgery or something? You know, I need a scar or something out of this experience. I believe I'm paying for something more than a pill here, right? It seems easy, but it's not just believe. 
If it were just believe, then apparently even the demons would be saved. You know, in James 2.19, it says, you believe uh, that there's one God, good, because even the demons believe that. In other words, we're talking about something a little different than just a cognitive assent. And that's why I like the word trust better than believe, because in English, that just captures more of the feeling. If you say, we just need to believe in God. No, that's not the idea. I believe that there's a God. Well, that's nice. You and 88% of Americans believe that there is God. You believe 88% of Americans are Christian? I don't think so either. But I think that they cognitively believe there's a higher power, and we're going to call him God. Believe in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Believe he lived. Believe he died on a cross. What's that mean to me? In other words, there's a big difference, though, in trusting. And that's why I want to talk to you about uh, what I call faith for grown-ups. Okay, faith for children is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's ask Jesus into your heart. Let him be your personal Lord and Savior. That's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking it. I'm just telling you, what does that actually mean? Faith is a very dynamic idea, as you might expect. When you're dealing with a terminal condition like sin, you need a medicine, you need a solution that's very active, that's going to be very powerful. Well, sometimes we get the idea of belief as not being a very powerful thing. It's sort of like having a Sam's card in your wallet. Right, pull it out, and they let me through the door. And sometimes belief is like that. I got my belief card right there, card-carrying Christian, let me through the door. Right? I'm into heaven, and that's that. That's really not sufficient to solve this terminal condition that we have. So let's talk about faith for grown-ups for a minute. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I want to reiterate it because I want to stick this idea in your mind. I'm a mathematician by training, so you'll have to bear with me. A mathematics lesson is the easiest way I can think of to explain this, all right? We'll start with a point. In mathematics, it's the simplest thing you can have. It's just a point. And you put a string of points together, and guess what you have? You have a ruler, basically. And every point has a number. And sometimes we think about faith in this way. Like, what do you have some faith? Yes, I have some faith right here. There it is. I've got my faith. How big is your faith? Oh, my faith is a five on the scale of, of faith. My wife, oh, she's an eight on the scale. She's got more faith than I've got, but I've got it. I possess it. It's just something I possess. I have faith. And we tend to think of it like that. Well, here's the problem. Mathematically speaking, points are very boring. They don't go anywhere. They don't do anything. They just have a value. They usually have a number assigned to them. You're number one, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four. And if we think about faith that way, that's not a faith that cures anything. And that's not the way I'd like you to think about faith. Instead, I'd like you to think about faith with a little bit different mathematical construct. I want you to think about faith as a vector. A vector is an idea in mathematics. It's basically has a value, it's a point, in other words, it's something you possess, it also has direction. And so a vector is something a little more complicated than a point. It has a value, Your vec the value of that vector could be five, again, like our point, but it's five going in that direction. Does that make sense? So this idea of a vector is a little more complicated idea, and that's the way I'd like you to think about faith. I want you to think about faith is a vector. It has value and it has direction. In other words, it's not only something that exists that you have trust, it's something that moves. It's never stationary. This is the way the New Testament envisions faith. The New Testament, every time you see the word believe, have faith, trust. It's always envisioned in this idea of a vector. If you stop and think about that, it's going to make a lot of passages of Scripture make sense. You're going to have a lot of arguments about faith and works, and when you understand faith as a vector, those go away. And my contention to you is that's exactly how the New Testament understands faith. Faith, let me just give you some words around that. Faith is a moving force. Faith always implies movement. It has a value. It's faith is something that you possess, and faith is something that you do. In other words, faith by its nature has value, and it has direction. It implies movement. 
That's why in the scriptures you'll see a lot of talk about the idea of faith and deeds, faith and good works, is because faith must express itself. We're reading today in Galatians chapter 5, and Paul talks about faith working itself out through love, or faith working through love. We're going to see a passage from James in a minute where he's going to talk about this conception of the idea of faith and good deeds or works. And we wrestle with that sometimes. We, we look at it and we say, well, wait a minute, what is the relationship? Faith is something I have. Deeds are something I do. Terry, I'm getting confused between the behavioral aspect of the cure and this pill, this magical thing called faith that I have. And the solution to that is to understand how the New Testament always sees faith as a vector. It's got value and it's got direction. This also kind of helps you to understand the difference between Christians and humanitarians. And you've probably heard me talk about this before. There are a lot of people in the world that do good deeds without any faith in Jesus Christ. But there is nobody in the world who has faith in Jesus Christ and doesn't do good deeds. Does that make sense? You can do good deeds without faith in Christ, but you can't have faith in Christ without doing good deeds. And that's the difference between Christians and humanitarians. A lot of people do good stuff, and I'm glad that they do. That's a good thing. It's just not a Christian thing. It's not the result of faith, but it's a good thing. Feed people who need food and heal people who need to be healed and clothe the people who need to be clothed. That behavior in and of itself has nothing really to do with faith. And that's why we can never act our way into solving our sin problem. Does that make sense? This is really a pretty profound thing to say, that the, this idea is that your fundamental underlying problem of unrightness, unrightness not just with God. I mean, when we fell out of a right relationship with God, we fell out of a right relationship with everything. We fell out of a, think about the fall, we not only became alienated from God, we became alienated from each other. I mean, really, what's the first thing Adam said? First fight in history, right? It's not recorded in the scripture. It just happens right after what's recorded in the scripture. God comes in and said, what have you done? God said, her, or Adam said, her fault. Remember that? Alienation, gentlemen. You know what happened in the car ride on the way home after that, right? I can't believe you threw me under the bus with God. You told him that it was all my fault. You will be sleeping on the couch tonight, for sure. You know, that's the first alienation. We're alienated from each other because of that fall. What happened to Adam and Eve? You're cast out of the Garden of Eden, and now what? By the sweat of your brow, you may, we're alienated from earth, from creation itself. So this alienation, this not-rightness, this unrighteousness, is something that comes as a result of this problem. That's a profound thing to say, and it's the underlying issue. And so, by the way, as long as I'm here, I need to talk to you for just a second about your marriages. Back to Adam and Eve. I just want to tell you this. There are, are a lot of things, in, and this is true for all of your important relationships. I mean, all of your intimate relationships, family, parents, children, whatever. But a lot of times we look at those relationships, we see the strife in those relationships, and we begin to behave differently. And, and that's okay. I mean, there are some behavior changes that need to be made, but that's a Band-Aid. The best thing you can do to strengthen your marriage, to strengthen your family, is everybody grow closer to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's consistent with this message, isn't it? You want to have a stronger marriage? Become stronger Christians. And I mean that in the real sense of you both moving towards Christ. Guess what? We're moving together. And don't start with just the behavioral things. Let's not think we can behave ourselves into a good marriage any more than we can behave ourselves into a right relationship with God. Now again, where does our faith lead to? You say, well, that's great, Terry. I can just say, hey, I love you and I'm growing closer to God, but I'm going to continue to annoy you to no end. That's not the nature of faith, is it? Remember what the solution is, trust. And how does trust express itself? It has value and it has direction. But if you get those two things backwards, begin to behave yourself into it, I think you're going to find what the whole world is finding is that that's called self-help and that doesn't work. 
Make sense? Any questions about that? Okay. You believe in that so far? This is just a little different way to look at uh, what Paul's saying. I mean, it's exactly what Paul's saying, but I want you to try to modernize this just a little bit because I want you to give this some thought because this is not natural. It's natural for us to think the problems in my life can all be fixed in a behavioral way. And the scripture says, no, you have deep, deep problems. And those deep problems can be fixed only with trust. And that trust has value and it has direction. Paul goes on and he's going to elaborate this theme. We move from chapter 3 on into chapter 4. And what is he saying? What will we say then about Abraham, our forefather? If Abraham was justified by works, in other words, if you can behave yourself into a solution of this problem, right, then he had something to brag about. He says, but not before God, because what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Again, I'm going to use our translation. Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember when God comes to Abraham, and he's sitting in Ur, and he's probably on the Chamber of Commerce, and he's got a nice house, and He's got a membership in the Ur Golf and Country Club, and God says, Abraham, got a good deal for you. I want you to leave the land in which you're sitting. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless all the world through you. And Abraham says, I absolutely believe that. Thank you very much. It was a great talking to you, God. Goes home. Sarah says, hey, did you have a good day? Yeah, God told me some awesome stuff, and I really believe it. So what's for dinner, and uh, we're going to have the Smiths over this week to play golf, right? In other words, does nothing. That's not righteousness, is it? It says Abraham trusted God. What did Abraham do? He picked up his family, and he left the place. So again, you see this idea of trust or faith. He not only believed God, it's not only something he possessed, it had a direction. It had movement to it. That's what Paul's saying. He said it's not just the fact that he behaved right, and it's not just the fact that he said, yep, I believe you, God. Faith is belief in action. Uh, James, you see this exact same idea resolved here. He says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now we're going to go to the other side, right? With Abraham, he said... It wasn't his works that saved him. It was that he believed God. Now, James is going to go to the other side and say, it's not the behavior, it's the faith, it's the belief. I mean, wait a minute, what are these guys talking about? Sounds like they're on different sides, right? On the one hand, you know, Romans is saying is, look what Abraham did, he acted. James is saying, acted, you know, let's look at the faith. He says, faith without deeds is useless. He's going to argue this. He says, Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. His faith and his actions were working together. That's the scripture's way of saying is faith has both of those. But instead of having both of those, faith means believing and working. I want you to think of faith as indistinguishable. I want you to think about it as a vector. The very nature of faith is a moving force. There's no such thing as, well, I have the faith, but I don't have the works yet. James says, then you don't have the faith yet, because what we're talking about has value and direction. It says his faith was made complete by what he did. It was made full, and the scripture that was fulfilled, that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, this faith is the key to rightness with God. This faith is something that you have, and it's something that you do. It moves us. This has profound implications. Let's go to a practical level. Because this is, this is what the gospel's saying, is that you have a sin problem and faith is the solution. You go, okay, I cognitively believe that, but how do I put that into practice? It, the Christians approach this really differently than anybody else. When you begin to look at the unrightness in your life, the turbulence in our relationships, the things that keep us from being in peace or happy or content, and all those things that stand between us and that, Christians are going to approach this really differently. And I want you to just trust any Christians that say, oh, well, I've got a self-help manual for you. Here are five easy steps to making this all work out. You may end up, you are going to end up doing some things because remember, faith, something you have and something you do. But Christians always start at a completely different place. 
if we begin to try to eradicate sins from our, sin from our lives, we're going to begin by trusting Christ more. You understand what I'm saying? We are going to treat this, this is a spiritual issue. This isn't just a behavioral issue. Christians are the only people that look at the world that way. That this is a spiritual issue. The fact that I'm having this strife says something about my faith, my trust. For example, let's go back to uh, marriages. Why do you think Adam threw Eve under the bus? Because, well, a lot of reasons, but here's your basic reason. Self, me before her. I mean, that's the ultimate me before her. It's like, God, if you're going to be mad at one of us, I'm not naming names, but it was her, you know, that did this. That's selfishness, isn't it? Fear, whatever it is that led to it, it's like, I'm going to save myself. It's me before you. You know how many of our problems get boiled down to me before you? Oh, my goodness. You know, what did the Jesus say? Paul, again, in Galatians, said the same thing. You can kind of sum up that whole law thing by love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? It means no more me before you, right? Christians approach those problems at the root level, not the behavioral level. A lot of the small things that we see is like, you know what? You don't listen to me. We don't communicate well. You don't do your share of work. You never take out the garbage. Why can't you pick up your clothes? I mean, these, are, these all sound like small things. And you can try to behave your way out of all these small things. And I don't know about you, but quickly, particularly early in my married life, you know, I started making a list of all the things I needed to do differently. I thought 10 men could not do this list, you know? I have so many things wrong with me. I, I need five lifetimes you know, to even get through the list of things I need to change. That's the wrong end of the thing to start with, isn't it? You start trying to behave our way out of it. This is not a very Christian idea. Our idea is, wait a minute, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What is this saying about me? What's the common root in all of these things? Maybe it's a self-centeredness. Maybe it's an impatience. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness. Maybe it's a lack of compassion. You know, whatever it may be, there's a root cause here. And you're going to find that there's a label for that root cause, and it's called sin. It's called me before her, or it's called me before you, or it's called I want what I want, and I don't care what you want. If you just open up the newspaper, you see all the problems in the world. If you'll think just a second and boil that down, at the bottom of that is something that in Christian scriptures is in that list somewhere, and it's called sin. And that causes all kinds of unrightness. We as Christians tend to want to approach the sin underneath that, the wrongness in our life. And don't take this word like every time I say sin, I'm beating you over the head with it. We're just labeling the problem for what it is. It's whatever it is in me. It's that self-centeredness in me that wants what I want before her or wants what I want and I don't care what you want. You see what I'm saying? That's what we need to attack because we can put all the Band-Aids on this we want. And you know what you tend to see with the Band-Aid approach is exactly what you see in our culture. A lot of pretty people who act the right way on the outside and are absolutely devastated on the inside. I mean, you look at families and you say, oh, what a nice family, they look great. And we've all done that. We've all been arguing in the car on the way to church. And it's like, all right, you kids, be quiet and put on a smile because we're at church now, right? So we all get out and we're the happy family now, aren't we? That's behavior. That doesn't address the underlying issue, does it? And sometimes we're surprised when those families, the, those problems erupt into public. And, and, but that is our life. And that's what slapping Band-Aids on it. That's what behavior modification does for us. We as Christians understand and we trust that reality is what Jesus said it was. And he said, here's the reality. You are in rebellion against God, and that's your fundamental problem. And if you trust me as the great physician, here's what you need, is you trust me that what I'm telling you is the way to live your life, that you follow me. I am the way to peace, to happiness, to contentment. So you come follow me. That trust is, is what he's saying, and that's how we tend to attack our problems. It springs from our relationship. It also means we're not directly attacking the sin. Have you ever tried to stop a bad habit and notice that that's all you can think about? Have you ever told a child, 
don't go near the edge of the cliff. Where do they go? <laughs> right up to the edge, don't they? Right, and we do that too with our sins, with our addictions. I'm trying to avoid this. Well, guess what? What am I thinking about constantly? The sin, whatever it is I'm trying to avoid. It's got the focus in my life. That's what makes the Christian experience very different. I'm not going to focus on the sin. I'm going to focus on the positive trait. In other words, I'm trying to be less impatient. No, I'm trying to cultivate a serenity, a patience. You see what I'm saying? We're completely on the other side of that. It's a more positive thing. It's a relational thing. It's not attacking the sin. It's basically cultivating our faith. Does that make sense? Do you believe that? That's a uniquely Christian way to approach how we're going to be transformed into new people. It's completely at odds with what the culture is going to tell you. Make sense? Question? So are you saying that works are a litmus test for faith? Um, if so, how do we keep from judging others' actions, and how do we keep from making our life a checklist to earn our way to eternal life? That's, that's a great question. Are we saying that works are a litmus test for faith? No. Categorically, no. James is saying, you see zero works, you don't have faith. I mean, because faith is a moving force. It's like, if you show me a point and you say, Terry, look at this nice vector. It's not a vector. It doesn't have direct, I'm sorry, it's just not what that is. It's not a litmus test in this sense, because the point is, how many good works do you have to do? The gospel doesn't even go there. So the idea is not so much that works, I understand the question, that's well, that's well put. It's, it's a different way of thinking. Works aren't an evidence of faith or a litmus test of faith. Faith inevitably expresses itself. You can have really nice people who are out there giving their lives to help the poor and they're doing all these great works. Would you say that that's a litmus test of their faith? Well, not necessarily. They may not believe in God at all. They may be doing good things. Remember? People can do good deeds without having faith, but you can't have faith without doing good deeds. So the fact that you see deeds happening, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have faith. My point is, is when you cultivate faith, you will see it. Sometimes we're tempted to use that as a measure of the value of our faith. Well, I got a five. How do I know I got a five? I got a five because I'm doing these works. My wife is an eight because she does ten times more than I do. Wrong way of thinking about it. Does that make sense? That's not, the, that's not a New Testament idea. If you think about the idea of bearing fruit, the one question the scripture never says is this, how good do I have to be? How much fruit do I have to bear? Well, if you get two good apples, you're into heaven. If you got one good apple, one rotten apple, sorry, not enough. That's called Islam. It's called the big scale. Do my good deeds outweigh the other? Do you understand? We, the scripture just doesn't go there. That's why it never answers the question, well, how good do I have to be? Wrong question. What do I have to do? You have to have faith. What does that mean? It means you're going to do something. Well, how much? The scripture is completely silent on that issue because it's, it's just the wrong way to think about it. So technically, I'd really like you to not think about works being a litmus test for faith. I just want you to think about faith and works. Oh, well, how you can't do one without the other because that is what faith is, acting itself out through love. Good question. If faith and actions work together, how do we trust Christ without relying on our own actions? If, if we will cultivate faith, if we will follow Jesus Christ, he does not, I've said this before, he isn't making us a better person. He's making us a new person. I want you to think about the idea. Again, I like Romans 12 too. It's a big verse for me. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to make that very consistent with what he's talking about here is the answer to your deepest problem is trust in Jesus Christ. That is a heart change, but it's also a head change. It's cognitive. The last thing it is, is a behavior change. Like I said, humanitarians behave well, but that's not having faith. Begin with, I want to know you, 
I want to follow you. I want to be like you, Jesus. And you begin to learn about Jesus Christ and you begin to imitate Jesus Christ. And that is, I'm going to have compassion for people who don't deserve it for his sake, not for theirs. And you will begin, you will begin to act that out. I'm going to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven because that's what my Lord did. And you will begin to act that out. You will begin to have the eyes that Jesus has, and you will begin to see things in a new light. Everybody that you know, you and I, see people every day who need something. It's a word of encouragement, and I would urge you never overlook that. You work with people who are so discouraged. They look so pretty on the outside, and they're so hurting on the inside because they're trying to behave their way out of their problem. A word of encouragement, uh, food, uh, needs, whatever it may be. I don't want you to think about your faith expressing itself through love in big ways. Like, okay, we're going to go build a clinic and we're going to cure all the people in Oklahoma City. Okay, that's a good thing. That's faith working itself out in love. But I don't want you to think about that. In fact, let me give you a great quote, one of my favorite quotes of Mother Teresa. But I'm going to put it in context. She said one time, she said, it's easy in her work I mean, because she was pretty famous, and she's doing really good work, and a lot of people said, oh, I'll help Mother Teresa. What do you need? How big a check do you want? I want to help save those dying children, right? She said, it's easy to find people to do the big things. What's hard is to find people to do the little things. She said, do small things with great love. I love that quote, and that's the context. And so my point to you is, is you follow Jesus Christ. We are in love with Jesus Christ. We are, he is the way. We are going to be like Jesus Christ. Opportunities will arise. Just don't wait for the big opportunity. Do small things with great love. So I'm really passionate about that. I want you to think about it because I don't want you to think, well, okay, I'm waiting for the big opportunity, God. What's it going to be? Do you need me to go be a Billy Graham? Am I the next Billy Graham? Do you need me to go be a missionary in deepest, darkest Africa? Or do I need to go do this? The answer might be yes, and if it is, he will open that door. He will tug on your heart. But you know what? When you go to work tomorrow, there's something that's there for you to do. There's a way for that faith to move, to express itself. Do small things with great love. It's a great question. Thank you very much for that. This idea of our faith and our works, I want you to really think about that. It requires a bit of a reprogramming because our culture doesn't think about it this way. But the uniquely Christian idea, faith has value and direction, and let it express itself. Well, it goes into chapter 5. So we've got the problem is sin, the solution is faith, and I mean faith for grown-ups, real faith, what faith really means, value and direction. And then he says, finally, we're going to get to what you and I might call good news, because so far we haven't had a lot of what I'd call good news. It's straight talk. It's what we need to hear. It really is good news. Like I said, when I went to the other doctor and he said, you know what, you actually have a problem, and it's here, that was good news, because I've been treating something totally wrong. I was never going to get well, was I? We were never going to get whole until we acknowledge what's really going on. And Jesus says, and you know what? Here is the cure for that. It's faith. Finally, we get back to the pursuit of happiness. And here's the gospel's answer. It says, therefore, having said all of that, since we have been justified through faith. Let me translate that into our terms. Since we've now been healed, made right, through trust in Christ. That's the gospel right there. We're broken, and the, the healing power is faith. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I started this by saying to you, everybody is pursuing happiness, and nobody is finding it because we are trying to solve the wrong problem. Here's what the good news of Jesus Christ is. You have a terminal condition. It's an unrightness called sin. And trust in Jesus Christ, this trust that has value and direction, follow him, is the solution. And here's what the result is. We've been justified through our trust. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That is the good news that you and I are being asked to believe, to trust in. Do you believe that? or not. 
The world's going to say, no, that can't possibly be right. There's no way that's the case. You're not actually a sinner. You're just disadvantaged. You need more money from the government. You know, it's not faith that's going to save you. You need a behavior modification program. I think, by the way, I got a patch here. Wear this patch. All right, and that'll change your behavior or something. But the good news of Jesus Christ says is, do you believe that reality is what I tell you it is? That your fundamental problem, this unrightness, is sin, and trust is the answer, and peace is the result. And then finally, and I want to just point this out to you, it's not until this point in this story that love ever shows up. Because I know that we like to think, well, God loves me. That's true. It took him five chapters to get to this. Why? Because we get to talk about the problem and the solution. And the only reason we have a solution is this. Hope does not disappoint us. It's one of the most beautiful passages. Uh, oh, there's so many in Romans, it's hard to say, but read this one a lot. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing thing. This is the amazing part. We were terminally ill. We couldn't behave our way out of it. And purely because he loved us, not through anything we deserved, God says, what Jesus Christ did, you trust that, and that is what will make you well. And so the good news doesn't really start with love, the way Paul presents it here. The good news is just made possible through love. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful picture. That's the message of the good news. You, and, and it's something you really need to think about. When you become a Christian, you know what that actually means? It means, I think that's true. I absolutely think that's true. It's the truth about me, and it's the truth about Jesus Christ. And I believe that all my fundamental problems are the result of sin, misplaced love, self-centeredness and imbalance and unrightness in my life. And I believe that trusting Jesus Christ, the way he said to do it is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to go against the culture. I'm going to go against the odds. I'm going to forgive the unforgivable. I'm going to love the unlovely because he did. That's what he said. I'm going to do it. And I trust that that will lead to that happiness I've been looking for in all the wrong places. Okay, that's a song lyric. I just had to throw that in. Make sense? Okay. I want you to think about that a little bit and uh, think about your life in that way. So as you approach the difficulties in your life, I want you to step back for a second and instead of just slapping a Band-Aid on it and saying, act different, do different, be better, do better, just step back and say, What's the underlying thing here? What's going on inside of me? What's the challenge to me to exercise my faith in this situation? Make sense? That just leaves with one interestingly unanswered question. And that is this. Wait a minute. What if we still commit sins? Because we do, right? I do. I don't, I don't know about you, but I do. Because Laura tells me that I do. And I know that is, that is true. What if we still commit sins? Can we be sinners? Can we sin and be righteous? How does that work? And if it doesn't work, how can I know I'm saved? That's the next question that Paul's going to answer in one of my favorite chapters in Romans, Romans chapter 6. So you have to wait till next week to find out how you know you can be saved. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week.